cost of following Jesus is high, but the return is so much greater. Our focus in this final sermon on the series, A Portrait of a Disciple, will focus our attention on the cost that every disciple must face in following Jesus. Now God's word for God's people. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, and we'll read through Mark 9, verse 1. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And we trust God the Holy Spirit to revive our souls this morning. Let us pray. God our Father, we ask you to teach us what it means to be your disciple, and in particular, the cost that we face in following Jesus. Give us faith, give us strength, that we would deny ourselves, that we would suffer, that we would bear the crosses, all that you have ordained for Christ's sake and the advancement of his kingdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, why end this series, A Portrait of a Disciple, as we've been studying, in particular looking at the Beatitudes and then the two uh, sections following the Beatitudes about salt and light? Why should we end the series by looking at the cost of discipleship? The answer to this question rests on this principle. If we live consistent with what we are called to be as Jesus has taught us in the Beatitudes and if we relate to the world how Jesus has told us to relate to the world as salt and light, we need to understand it will cost us. The important conclusion is this the cost of following Jesus. And then to consider counting the cost only to ask 
is it worth the cost? Have you ever asked that question? Is it worth the cost to be Jesus' disciple? Toward the end of my graduate studies in chemistry, I began working at Oak Ridge National Labs. In the research lab of which I was a part, a fellow lab mate became a very good friend of mine. He was a cultural Jew, was not even all that interested in spiritual things, but was very open to me sharing about my spiritual journey. And so toward the end of my research, both Ray and I felt as though God was calling us into full-time Christian work. And I had a, a decision to make to leave the field of chemistry and go to seminary. And so I was talking with my friend in the lab very openly about this, and out of concern for me, not at all in any kind of a derogatory or negative way, he asked me this, Tim, you have worked so hard to be in the field of chemistry. Is it worth throwing all of that away to go to seminary? Following Jesus is costly. It has been for me, it is for me, and it will be for me until I die. And it is the same for you. Is the cost of being Jesus' disciple worth it? We want to answer that question, and I'll give you a hint as to the answer in the affirmative, yes, it is worth it, by looking at three things, a costly cross, a scandalous cross, and a personal cross, really personal crosses, plural, a costly cross. The cross was ever so costly for Jesus. The cost of my college tuition was paid by my parents. And as I have gotten older and reflected back on all that they sacrificed, that I would graduate from college without debt has moved me to appreciate not only what they sacrificed for me to go to college, but what they sacrificed to raise me, and there was a lot of sacrifice. I was not all that great as a kid. But it but it's caused me to reflect upon that and to grow in my love for them and appreciation for what they did for me, not only in paying for college, but by raising me in a Christian home. And how much more should our devotion to and appreciation of grow and mature and deepen as we reflect upon all that Christ has sacrificed, the cost that was laid upon him for our salvation. In verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days rise again. Now, with regards to Mark's gospel, this is the first direct statement by Jesus of his suffering. In these words, Jesus, as it were, pulled the curtains back to give his disciples a glimpse of the cost of his cross, that he would pay a price, that he must pay that price that he agreed to pay that price, that he loved to pay that price, that he would indeed meet the cost perfectly in order that those whom the Father had given him would be redeemed. Jesus' mission to redeem sinners, his mission of suffering and death, is described in these verses. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 10, 14 through 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Romans 9, or Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is pure. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then just to remind us of just a few verses from Isaiah 53 that Dan read earlier, an Old Testament passage foretelling of Christ's suffering for the sins of many. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. The cross was ever so costly for Jesus. In the hymn of assurance, we sang Isaac Watts' famous hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, most beloved hymn, I would say, of this congregation. Watts captures the response every redeemed sinner should have in light of the cost of the cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present 
far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. My all is the cost that we must pay to follow Jesus. The cost of the cross for Jesus was high, but the return for us is so much greater. The costly cross is salvation for some, and it is scandalous for others. In verse 29, Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ. Peter affirmed that Jesus was Messiah. Jesus exclaimed to Peter and to the other disciples the cost that he had to suffer as Messiah. In verse 31, we've read that. Jesus would suffer, he would be rejected, he would die. And the fact that he had to be bodily raised from the grave, again, just points to the fact that he died and his body was placed in the grave. A suffering Messiah who would die did not line up with Peter's expectations, not in the least. And so how did Peter respond? With gratitude, love so amazing, so divine, demands my all? No. Peter rebuked Jesus, verse 32, and then Jesus rebukes Peter in verse 33, showing that Peter's expectation with regards to Messiah were inconsistent with Scripture. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter was looking at the cross through man's eyes, not through the eyes and lenses of Scripture. And to understand the gravity of Jesus' stern rebuke of Peter, get behind me, Satan, would you like Jesus to say that to you? How would that make you feel? Is that not a rebuke of rebukes from our Lord? To understand the gravity of Jesus' words, to understand Peter's folly, not only in rebuking Jesus for the biblical teaching regarding the cross and his mission, but also the folly of rejecting Scripture, trying to understand the cross through man-centered thinking, we need to look at another passage, another verse, actually. Romans 9.33. In Romans 9.33, Paul says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now in Romans 9.33, Paul quotes two passages out of Isaiah, one in Isaiah 8 and verse 14 and one in Isaiah 28 and verse 18. We find the same two Isaiah passages quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 2.9. Now, to many in Israel, 
to many throughout history, even to our day, Jesus is a stone of stumbling. And this image, imagery depicts people rejecting Jesus in unbelief. They reject him, his work on the cross, and all that the cross stands for. And they stumble to their shame and to their ruin. Jesus also is, has been a rock of offense to many and is a rock of offense to many today and will be until he comes. And the Greek word that Paul translates rock of offense in Romans 9.33 is scandalon. Maybe you've heard that word before. Let me explain what it means. And I'll use an illustration from my boyhood. One of my favorite uncles taught me to build a rabbit box. And a rabbit box is designed to catch rabbits, in case you were wondering. And so I, with my uncle's instructions, built a rabbit box. It included a door with a lid, a trigger, that when the rabbit would enter through the open door of the rabbit box to get the bait that was in the back of the rabbit box, he would hit a stick that was a trigger. And when he hit that stick, it would trigger the door to close and the door would close and the rabbit, or in my case, I never caught a rabbit, I caught plenty of possums. And in case you don't know, possums ain't good to eat. The rabbit, disguised as a possum, would be trapped in the box. That depicts the Greek word scandalon, that is translated offense. Scandalon refers to a trigger with bait on it that entices, tempts someone to take the bait and in so doing they become ensnared in a trap and let me conclude to their ruin. So think of scandalon simply as this. This is just a working definition of that word. An enticement to conduct or behavior that would lead to that person's ruin. So for Peter, let me try to explain this. For Peter, looking at the cross, not through the lenses of Scripture, but through man's eyes, through the eyes of the world, through a man-centered perspective, Peter, the cross, for Peter, the cross was an enticement to respond, that is, an enticement to conduct, that if he persisted in that conduct would ultimately lead to his ruin. And in that sense, the cross was a scandal to Peter. So when Peter heard Jesus say, I have come to suffer, be rejected, to die. And in fact, in case you didn't get it, that I was going to die and my body was going to be in a grave, I would actually have to rise from that grave. Peter went, no way. My Messiah, our Messiah, that can't possibly be. He's not going to die. He rejected 
Jesus as a suffering Messiah. He rejected the cross. The costliness of the cross to Jesus was a baited trigger, tempting Peter to reject the teaching of Scripture like that of Isaiah 53, and in fact to reject Christ's own teaching throughout his ministry where Christ very clearly spoke of his suffering and even his death and the necessity of his death. Instead, he based his objection to Christ not on Scripture, but on a man-centered expectation that rejected the notion of a suffering Messiah. And in that sense, the cross was a scandal to Peter. He was enticed to cast Scripture aside and to view it as the world would view it. And it entrapped him, it ensnared him. And if he persisted in that rejection, it would lead to his ruin. Peter took the bait. We know that Peter ultimately embraced the cross. And to Peter, the cross was not a scandal, but his salvation. But in this moment, the cross to Peter was scandalous, even to his ruin if he did not repent. Let me ask you this question. What what was Satan's goal when Satan was allowed to tempt Jesus in the wilderness? Think of Mark 1 and Matthew 4. Satan's goal was to tempt Jesus to set aside his messianic mission. And that messianic mission centering on the fact that he would suffer and die on the cross and would rise again from the grave to redeem elect sinners. Satan's mission was to tempt Jesus to set that aside. Satan wanted to remake Jesus, a word that's very popular in our day, Satan wanted to reimagine Jesus as Messiah that did not suffer, as Messiah that didn't have to go to the cross, as a, as a Messiah that didn't have to die for the sins of any. That's what Satan wanted to do. And the irony is that type of reimagining of Jesus is what Peter aligned himself with. That's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Satan sought to entice Jesus to avoid the cross. No cross, get this, no cross, no salvation. And that was Satan's goal. And at this moment, Peter is affirming That's my goal. No cross. So Peter rebuking Jesus over the cross, he was aligning himself with Satan's scheme, and Jesus sternly said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But even more, Jesus was rebuking Satan like Jesus did in the wilderness. The irony of this text is the very cross that, was, that became a scandal to Peter was the very cross 
that would save him and save us. Now let me ask this question. I'm just full of questions today. How might we make the cross scandalous? Well, there's one outright way is that we just simply, we're like Peter, we just reject this notion of a suffering Messiah. We say, for goodness sakes, there's got to be some other way to get to heaven than through the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and reign of Christ. We think about salvation in terms of no cross, but remember, that's what Satan wanted to do. No cross, no salvation. But if we say no cross, no salvation, we make the cross a scandal. It is a, it is a baited trigger, and we take the bait to our ruin. Do you get that? To our ruin. I'll tell you another way that's much more subtle that we make the cross scandalous. And it's not rejecting our suffering Messiah. It is sugarcoating it. What do I mean by that? In order to make the gospel more palatable, in order to gather more and more people so that we're not offensive or worship is not offensive or my little gospel presentation, which is void of gospel, by the way, is not offensive. I'm going to downplay all this business about sin. I'm going to downplay all this business about blood being shed to atone for my sin. Oh my goodness, we've got to downplay it. We've got to sugarcoat it so that people won't be offended about a suffering Messiah and the necessity of that because of my sin. We've got to soften this business about a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. We've got to downplay judgment against sin. We've got to take out that corporate confession of sin in our liturgy, for goodness sakes. So people won't be offended by the notion that there are sinners in need of a Savior that bled and died to atone for sin. We need to preach self-improvement and stay away from repentance and faith because that implies that nasty little three-letter word, sin. You think I'm speaking with hyperbole, but that's what happens in so many churches across our country and world today. Sugarcoating the gospel. I would suggest to you that that is tantamount to doing exactly what Peter did, making the cross scandalous to a person's ruin. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.18? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. May we never make the cross scandalous, either by outright rejection of a suffering Messiah or trying to sugarcoat the cross 
and the gospel itself. For the cost of the cross viewed as a scandal is high. But the return for those who embrace the cross as salvation could not be greater. And then lastly, a personal cross. The cross was costly for Jesus. And following Jesus means it's costly for us. If anyone, verse 34, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Renee and I vacationed several summers ago in the Bay Area of San Francisco. And we wanted to go over to Sausalito. We wanted to go and visit Muir Woods. And we decided that we would take a drive across the Golden Gate Bridge. And what I discovered is that you've got to pay to cross the Golden Gate Bridge. There is a toll. It cost us something. And we counted the cost of driving over that bridge. And we decided to pay the price. And I'm glad we did. Love Sausalito, really enjoyed Mere Woods. But there was a cost to it. Like our journey crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, there's a cost to our journey following Jesus. Now, the cost is not relatively inexpensive, six or seven bucks or whatever it was, to cross the Golden Gate Bridge. Conversely, the cost of following Jesus is a very, very steep cost. It costs self-denial. It costs suffering. And if you thought that was enough, it cost death. Death, can you believe it? We must count the cost. If we are seeking to follow Jesus, and I think when we count the cost, the next question is appropriate. Is it worth it? The cross for the disciple is not the same as Christ's cross. Let me make that clear. Jesus went to his cross. His cross was for the redemption of elect sinners. His cross is unique to him. We can never take up Jesus' cross. He's the redeemer. Fully God, fully man. But we're not called. Jesus doesn't call us to take up his cross. That's something only he can do. But what does the text tell us? It tells us, Derek's already said this, that we're to take up our crosses, personal crosses, that, by the way, are ordained by God. Personal crosses that vary. The, the specifics of the crosses I bear may be like the crosses you bear. may not be. We have... God is so sovereign that he caters crosses for each disciple, the exact cross they need to bear to achieve his purposes. The things that I have to experience with regards to suffering may not be the things that you experience. The, 
the circumstances of my self-denial may not be the same as the circumstances of your self-denial. So the specifics, the particulars vary, but the principle is the same. Every disciple has to deny him or herself. Every disciple is to suffer in following Jesus. You may think, why? Our Savior suffered. Our Master suffered. What makes us think we're not going to suffer? And to follow Jesus, we have crosses to bear. If we are living consistent with what we are meant to be in the Beatitudes, and if we are relating to the world how Jesus tells us to relate to the world as salt and light, we will suffer. We will have crosses to bear. We will have to deny ourselves. It will cost us. Jesus helps us understand the meaning of self-denial, the meaning of suffering, the meaning of taking up one's cross. In verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, die to everything. For my sake and the gospel's sake, will save it. That is, be saved by the power of Jesus' cross. A disciple suffers and dies to all. It's radical. But that is the cost of being Jesus' disciple. In Luke's gospel, our Lord says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, anyone, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Radical. We are to die to family. We are to die to reputation. We are to die to our money. We are to die to our plans and our goals. We are to die even to our view and perspective of ministry. We are to die to pleasure. We are to die to happiness as our goal. We are to die to security, to fame, to reputation. Think of all the things that cost us to follow Jesus. Jesus is obviously not saying we're to hate our family, that we're to make no plans for the future, that we are to have no goals. He's not saying we should get rid of all of our money and our belongings, but he is saying that we have to die to everything that we might trust to give us life other than him. Even including parents, children, and having grandchildren puts this in a much greater relief. The way of the cross is suffering to us 
as it was for our master? It is death for us as it was for him. Is it worth it? I had to die to my goal of being a chemist. And there have been times over 31 years of ministry where I've questioned my calling and I have asked, has this been worth it? Wouldn't I have liked doing something else? Wouldn't it have been better for me to do something else? I had to die. I have to die today. And I'll have to die tomorrow. And until Jesus comes. To all these things. that may or may not be good or bad in and of themselves, but might keep me from making the cross scandalous. I have to die to them in order to find life in him. We must not be like Peter in this passage, who sinfully based his view on man-centered thinking that led him to view Jesus' suffering and cross is unnecessary. The cross became scandalous to Peter. But we also need to see that the cross being scandalous to Peter also meant that any suffering and, and bearing of a cross that he might have to do, he viewed as scandalous as well. How many of us today want a perfect Christian life with no suffering? That's viewing the cross and making the cross scandalous. Rather, we're to view Jesus' suffering and cross according to Scripture and reject any man-centered notion that would make the cross unnecessary or to sugarcoat the cross. We must view the cost of following Jesus according to Scripture and reject any man-centered notion that would lead us to view suffering and dying as unfair or some punishment that we have to endure. We have to view self-denial and suffering and taking up our crosses as God-ordained, even viewing them as gifts of grace, as the, as the cross of Christ that costly cross is a gift of grace for our salvation. As a disciple, following him and suffering and self-denial and bearing our crosses, those things are gifts of grace for our sanctification. God is sovereignly using them to grow us as his disciples. This past week, I was talking with a brother and he told me about a very intense time of suffering and trial that he experienced some years ago. And he said this, I wouldn't give anything for that. God has used it to make me the Christian man I am today. I was listening to an interview with Tim Timmons, the singer-songwriter. He was diagnosed with incurable cancer and given five years to live in 2000. 
and after treatment and numerous operations, today he is in remission. But he spoke about this cancer very openly. And he spoke of his cancer as being a gift. Timmons said, I'm a different man than I ever would have been without this cancer. He said, I would never have known Jesus like I know Jesus but for this cancer. I would have never loved my family like I get to love them but for this cancer. Timmons acknowledged nobody wants to invite calamity and sorrow and hard things, yet I am welcoming, welcoming me of them in different ways. And Timmons suggests that whatever crosses we bear must be viewed in a different way than a man-centered way. A man-centered way that views such things as a problem that creates anger and resentment and bitterness. They become a scandal. But Timmons encourages us to view them according to Scripture. They are crosses we bear. They are gifts that forever change us, that God uses as part of His design to grow His disciples. We deny self. We suffer. We die to everything only to find true life and salvation in Jesus and His costly cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The cost for following Jesus is high. But the return could not be greater. Let us pray. Father, we pause to give you thanks for the cost of the cross that you endured for our redemption. And we ask for you to give us grace that we would see the God-ordained suffering and self-denial and crosses that you call us to bear as gifts of grace to grow us as your children. Oh, Father, is it worth it? We say yes, yea, and amen. For as we lose our life, we find it in you. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.